Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by my little homie, Jeet Korn. Jeet, you mean the man behind danwei.org. Say hello, Jeremy. Uh, good evening, Kaiser. I don't know about this little homie stuff, but, you know, <laughs> well, you're, you're I'll let you me. get away with it because it's summer. Okay, well, it is summer, and, and I've got, you know, kind of hip-hop on, on my mind. Okay. Days. Anyway, today we are delighted to have with us Anthony Kuhn, who, who for many years was National Public Radio's correspondent in China. He's been off reporting in Southeast Asia, reporting out of Jakarta, and traveling around uh, the Middle East, um, various places in the Middle East. Anyway, he has now come back to us in Beijing for uh, for a year at least, while Louisa Lim is on sabbatical, and we are pleased to welcome him back to the Jing with his flawless Mandarin and his new mini mullah-like growth of facial hair, which caused <laughs> me to not recognize him when I ran into him at a party the other day. Welcome back, Anthony, and thanks for joining us on Seneca. Thank you, and watch I don't slap a fatwa upside your head. <laughs> and we're also joined by Seneca stalwart David Moser, who's Director of Chinese Studies at the CET program in Beijing, and a real polymath, linguist, philosopher, pianist, and all-around mensch. How are you, David? Uh, good. Stalwart. Ah, yes, stalwart indeed. We are uh, trying an odd topic today that requires a bit of a lengthy setup, so please bear with me. So, democracy is under discussion again. Uh, in Egypt, what was, by most accounts, a free and fair democratic election uh, resulted in the vic- victory of Mohamed Morsi. Um, the candidate of the once outlawed Muslim Brotherhood, uh, whose controversial rule ended, well, not the Brotherhood's, but Morsi's rule ended last week uh, with a coup d'etat by the still very powerful Egyptian military after um, lengthy protests against Morsi's rule. As far as administration's incompetence and in providing your, your basic services like gas and, uh, of course, his alleged author- authoritarian habits. Um, the coup was applauded by the center-right columnist for the New York Times, David Brooks, in an op-ed that ran on Friday. Uh, Brooks essentially called into question the readiness for e- of Egyptians for democracy. Uh, and at the end of an otherwise not so completely whacked out weird op-ed by the Wall Street Journal that same day, uh, that paper's editors ended with this gem, Egyptians would be lucky if their new ruling generals turn out to be in the mold of Chile's Augusto Pinochet, who took power amid chaos but hired free market reformers and midwifed a transition to democracy. I don't know, this midwifery of democracy bit, I don't know, but Pinochet. Anyway, both op-eds uh, were uh, not surprisingly met with quite a bit of, of rancor and a firestorm of criticism. Um, especially from the American left. Now, by now, you're wondering what the hell this has to do with China, uh, but I would submit for anybody with a keen interest in the political future of China, it's impossible to watch events as they've unfolded in the Middle East without pondering the implications, the applicability, the points of convergence and divergence um, with China. Um, I mean, as far back as the American invasion of Iraq in 2003, both in Beijing and among outside China watchers, we, we were seeing a kind of parallel debate about uh, about China happening, you know, sparked by the Bush 43 administration's decision to pursue regime change and uh, install democracy in Iraq. I mean, could that happen here? Here in China, before the Arab Spring had even been called the Arab Spring, uh, we were already doing the could it happen here thing um, here among the China watchers and even the sort of non-specialist pundits outside of China and ordinary Chinese and, of course, the Chinese political leadership itself. Um, those leaders were, were pretty confident, as I think most China watchers were, that you know uh, the sparks of what was happening in Tunisia and in, in, in Egypt 
weren't going to find dry tinder in China, and they weren't going to you know, spark any kind of a conflagration here. But uh, nevertheless, they, they got super nervous, and they cracked down on, on anyone who was whispering the, the, the J word, you know, Jasmine. <laughs> Jasmine. And we were all uh, treated to these kind of bizarre episodes, um, like when former U.S. Ambassador John Huntsman showed up in Wang Fujing wearing that bomber jacket and was caught on video, uh, just, you know, taking a leisurely stroll on Sunday <laughs> afternoon. At McDonald's, at McDonald's. McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. as that do. Yeah, as he's Be a good Mormon. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, but that usher didn't... <laughs> do they have to eat McDonald's? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I, I, Mormons should not be allowed to eat McDonald's. There's got to be something in there that, 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 that's... Anyway, um, but... Uh, that whole thing ushered in a rather darker period, at least for our journalist friends here. Um, you know, and under, many other types of and many other types, but, yeah. but right, the, the journalists especially came, came under journalist increased. activists. I would say had it the worst in terms of Chinese people. A yeah, lot of activists. Uh, anyway, way in, in in the two and a half years since a Tunisian street vendor's self-immolation um, sparked the Arab Spring uh, through the whole fall of Mubarak and the bloody Libyan civil war that ended up with Gaddafi getting it. Uh, through the, the the ongoing slaughter in in Syria, uh, the view from Beijing has undergone you know hasn't undergone really too much change. I mean, it's still sort of I can imagine a lot of well, I told you so, or see, careful what you wish for that kind of that kind of thing. Um, I wanted to start a discussion by um, talking about the, the more surface politics before diving deeper into any discussion on the discourse of democracy and what Anthony, when we were communicating earlier, really called authoritarian envy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, so uh, uh, let's, let's, let's chat about Beijing's reactions first. Uh, it's like its investment in Morsi as a, an ally. Anthony, is it a fair characterization of the Chinese leadership's reaction to events over the last two and a half years in the Middle East, uh, kind of like what I said, you see, uh, good thing our hand was firmly on the, the rudder. Well, um, I think... Beijing has learned from uh, the events of the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Arab Spring has has presented it with a lot of opportunities. Uh, a lot of the new uh, so-called Arab Spring regimes have been wary of courting the U.S. and the EU as much. Uh, economically, Chinese firms present an alternative that they can use. Uh, and, uh, you know, as we saw, Morsi's first visit outside the Middle East was to China. I guess I should probably disclose he actually visited Baidu. Where I work. Oh, really? He oh. did, yeah, yeah, yeah. A good disclosure. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't you know, he him. clearly didn't learn anything about public <laughs> opinion surveillance from the <laughs> Communist Party or Baidu. <laughs> clearly not. But, you know, um, I think that uh, China has to be really careful when it goes into a conflict situation about picking sides. Uh, it got kind of burned in Libya. It opposed the revolutionaries, uh, and Chinese firms lost a lot of money when the revolutionaries won out. Right. And, uh, you know, it had uh, it actually had uh, growing ties with Mu- the Mubarak regime in Egypt. Uh, At the so, time of, of, of his ouster. Right? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, wherever... It, you know, as China's influence expands, where, whether it's in the mid- Middle East or whether in its backyard in, in Southeast Asia, when you pick a side, you know, you, you get burned. There, there are pluses and minus, minuses either way. So China has to be very careful with that. But, you know, I think uh, when things happen like the Iraq War or the revolution in Egypt, uh, the discussion is dominated by you know, basically a proxy issue. Right. What do the intellectuals think about democracy, about humanitarian intervention? 
Uh, and in a way, uh, you know, the bigger issue of the opportunities for China to expand its influence sort of gets sidelined. You know, what kind of uh, relationship could China forge with uh, Islamist states, for example? What effect would that have on Xinjiang? That's gotten a lot less attention, I think. Absolutely. A very, very important uh, thing to point out here. Um, what, what about going forward? Do you think that now, uh, with CC in charge, with the new, the, the new coup leaders, do you think that China has burned bridges? I mean, you know, it, it's been burnt. It did invest in, in its relationship with Morsi, but uh, do you think that what we've now seen um, happen in Cairo is uh, a, a, a change that's that's unequivocally going to hurt Beijing's presence there. Well, you know, they, as I was saying, they invested fairly heavily in relations with Mubarak, uh, and I think what they've got to to do is be pragmatic and say we don't really care how you resolve your uh, democratic system problems or what form of government you take. Their priority is going to be, I think, uh, economic. You know, right. economic. Right, that's and that's right. what I think. I mean, that, that that sort of outlasts whatever whoever happens to be in command. That, that yes, but it's so complicated. I mean, uh, uh, for example, on the on the Palestinian issue, the Islamist states were uh, you know friendly to Hamas. On the other side, uh, they uh, they weren't. You know, they made the uh, rich the Gulf rich Arab Gulf states very nervous. Right, the oil oil rich Arab Gulf states very nervous. Um, so, you know, however it maneuvers there, it has, it, it's at risk of offending somebody. Absolutely. Oh, so what did you guys think of that, uh, that David Brooks, I want to get, get into the meat of what we want to talk about here, uh, the David Brooks editorial. And, um, I mean, first of all, am I, am I right? I mean, is old China hands, when you read that, did you find yourselves thinking China, you know, when you... Did, did, did it resonate with you? Uh, well, ma- the, mainly, the main feeling I had was sort of schadenfreude or something because <laughs> to see these uh, right-wing Fox News people like uh, Charles Krauthammer and, uh, and uh, uh, the Rich was. Lowry and all these people right. backtracking on what they said n- n- not too much earlier about uh, uh, congratulating, you know, the purple finger symbolizing George Bush's push towards, you know, democracy in the Middle East and stuff <laughs> like that. And now doing a 180-degree flip, flip-flop. So that was my first impression. But in terms of China, uh, of course, he's saying the same kinds of things that people have said about China for, for forever, right. know, which is sort of like, uh, you know, is China the kind of fertile ground for, for democracy? Do Chinese have the... I mean, they don't use, they've even used probably terms that Brooks used, like they don't have the mentality, the mentality for it or whatever it was he said in, in the editorial. So, so Dave, I mean, at its very core, this is an argument, you know, that, that, that familiar argument is one from relativism, isn't it? I mean, the idea that this set of people, given its particular set of historical circumstances, its, uh, its experiences, its current economic realities, its traditions, its, you know, habits and values and norms, um, that isn't ready for democracy. I mean, I, I've, I've always believed, and maybe I'm wrong, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that that was an idea that was more common on the left, on the left. once upon a time. Mm. Right. Uh, and it, 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 it struck me as odd that now we're seeing it championed on the right. I mean, am I wrong? But, I mean, don't you think the whole world has shifted in this kind of weird way? I mean, the the heirs to Trotsky now are all in Washington, D.C., and have been for the last <laughs> 10 years. Constant revolution, always wanting regime right. change. Whereas the people it's, who it's just right. want stability mm-hmm. are in Peking. It's the right you who's know, become the revolutionary. The right are the revolutionaries. So the whole I mean, world has flipped axes. <laughs> it has in a weird way, I think. I mean, the Iraq war was where you saw, I mean, you saw actual former Trotskyists come out in support of regime change. I mean, half you of You were talking those, about Hitchens. Well, Hitchens, uh, Paul um, Wolfie, Wolfowitz, 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 Wolfowitz. Wolfowitz. I mean, and there were several others. 
Um, Wolf Wolfowitz. <laughs> the project for the new American century, a kind of right-wing think tank that was behind a lot of the yes. thinking behind the Iraq War. Yeah. A lot of the people that were involved in that were people who used to be, they were lefties in their student days. That's, that's true. That's right. You know, I, a There's lot a of things have switched. I mean... Right. This guy, David Horowitz, who was David extreme Horowitz. left and now is almost like a weatherman kind yeah, of exactly. revolutionary, yeah, right? Yeah, and right. is now... Um, but weather yeah. underground, right? But, Kaiser, I don't think that it has to do necessarily... I mean, you can still be a cultural relativist and, and see, you know, the, a nuance, have a nuanced position towards democracy in China. I don't see why it's a left-right issue so much. I mean, it's, it's not... You can, you can make the argument that China is, is different and that, that it, it should follow, follow a different path or that its people are not, uh, you know, for cultural reasons predisposed towards certain forms of democracy without, you know, it's, and, and that seems like that's independent of left or right analysis. So, I mean, it's, it's an argument with, you know, a, a very long history when applied to China. I mean, it goes quite far back, I mean, at least to the time of, of the Republican Revolution, right? Right. Um, I, mean, I think a lot of our readers are, or a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with the whole episode around the coronation of Yuan Shikai as mm-hmm. emperor. Um, and we, in 1916, he, under the advice of an American political scientist from Columbia, a guy named Frank Goodnow, he basically mm-hmm. said, well, I mean, who, who, who convinced Yuan that the Chinese, what the Chinese people really want is for you to don the purple, as it were, and, mm. and to, to assume the mantle of a new emperorship and a new dynasty. And he did that, and then, of course, revolution broke out uh, for a, a third or fourth time, I guess, uh, after 1911. But, I mean, it wasn't just him, right? I mean, there was this whole Sun Yat-sen idea of, uh, of a period of tutelage, Yes, too. Right. Um, um, do any of our historians want to jump in and explain what, what that whole business was about? You do. You do better than any of us. <laughs> Are you referring to the small army of historians? Yeah, we'll do, uh, we'll, we'll untuck some of those historians. Uh, um, no, uh, yeah, right. The, 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 the idea was, of course, that uh, there there would be a period of essentially uh, beneficent strongman rule uh, while the people were made ready for to 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 you know accept true republicanism or or or, or true democracy, right? And Sun never specified exactly when this would end, mm. and it was always sort of used as uh, as, as an excuse. But this, uh, we we see echoes of it again and again and again. I'll, I'll, every time somebody raises this argument, well, all the way down to Jackie Chan or to Eric X Lee, or, or well, we we should just point out though that almost all these leaders, from Liang Qichao to to uh, Sun Yat Sen to even Mao Zedong, and then Liang even was recently never a leader, to really, but to. Uh, <laughs> And then to uh, even Wen Wen Jiabao uh-huh. have paid lip service to eventual to the inevitability of some kind of democ- democratic rule in China. They've all said that at one time or another. And then when it, when the when push comes to shove, or when the rubber meets the road, or whatever metaphor you want to use, you, they come back to this deflecting strategy of you know a period of tutelage or the time's not right or or whatever. You know what I find most frustrating about this debate and I I find it equally frustrating reading David Brooks or Eric X Lee or you know Jackie Chan is that there seems to be this kind of sort of binary dichotomy black and white. So either you have democracy, you have a free press and a bunch of other stuff, you have all of that, you have open society or you're a dictatorship. And it seems to me that you know, people like, say, for example, Eric X. Lee defend Chinese authoritarianism. And he'll write essays that defend censorship and defend the fact that there are no elections as though it's one thing. 
And people like David Brooks also seem to me to sort of think, you know, you're either an authoritarian state or you're a people ready for American-style democracy or you're not. And that's it. And yeah, I, I find this I very frustrating. I mean, I find the, people like Eric Exley, why I find his arguments so annoying about China is that, okay, China might not be ready or maybe never uh, will be ready for the kind of elections you have in the United States. But why should you lock up uh, writers and artists who... Uh, you know, say things that the government doesn't like. Is there not some kind of middle ground where you don't have to lock up dissenters, but you don't have parliamentary democracy? Right. I, I think that's the the one area I think where where uh, people like Eric Exley are not fully intellectually honest. Is is they they don't talk about uh, what is necessary to keep that one party state in 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 place, which is coercion. They never they never address full. Flat on, uh, you know, wh- whether it's you know milder form like internet censorship, or you know locking up dissidents as you suggest, uh, he, they they never fully face this this notion that some form of state monopoly on on, on use of force and willingness to deploy that that. And uh, the bizarro are, version of Eric Exley's David Brooks, who sees what goes on in Egypt and concludes, you know, obviously. Uh, it's not possible for these Muslims to like have democracy because they're just too primitive. So you know. So right? uh, Anthony, yeah, I mean, no, so w- w- no, seriously, that's the that's the question. Are the are the one of our interns, Emma, sent me a, a an article that opens with this teaser. One year on the Arab revolutions, this is of course in 2012 that this was was sent uh, uh, written. The Arab revolutions continue to circle around the issue of whether Islam is compatible with democracy. This article asks the long feared question: Is the Arab Spring, articulated in the democratic idiom of freedom, liberty, and justice, doomed to a takeover by the Islamists? Uh, what's what's going on right now uh, in in terms of that discourse, and and how's that? changing both in in the Middle East itself uh, as a result of some of the disappointments of the Arab Spring so far, the rise of Islamists within, you know, the Syrian opposition, and of course, here, I mean, Benghazi is a good example, too. Uh, is that still under discussion there? Oh, well, I'm sure that discussion is ongoing. I have to say my perspective on that is uh, from having been based in Jakarta for the past three years, which, which is of also course, a Muslim country, right? Of course. Yes. The and world's largest. Yes, and also happens to be a democracy, uh, mind you, since 1998, since the fall of Suharto. Uh, But, you know, has been pretty successful in having pluralistic politics and uh, robust media and civil society. And uh, although it's sort of on the very far eastern tip of the arc of Islam, yes, it is, uh, you know, a Muslim-majority country and... I was going to ask you. I mean, so is that is that part of the terms of the discussion when when you are in Lebanon or when you are in other parts of the Middle East? Uh, is is Indonesia held up as an example of a successful uh, secular democracy uh, in in overwhelmingly uh, Islamic country? Uh, it's raised. I think mostly it's for for Indonesia to uh, to promote its model, and they they do that. Uh, they've tried to to mediate and stuff, but um, they have not they have not been able to play a central role, and they have their own problem problems with, for example, intolerance and uh, attacks on minorities like the Shia. Sure, and the specter of Islamism is raised in in Indonesia as well, pretty frequently, right? I mean, you well, you know, uh, when the country was born. Um, at the end of World War II, the country had a choice between uh, nationalism and Islamism and communism. Right. 
And what happened in the end, essentially, was that the uh, the nationalists ganged up with the Islamists and wiped out the communists. In 65, was that right? That's right. Uh, they, they massacred, uh, you know, as many as a million or more communists, and the country essentially amputated its own le- left wing and had no labor unions or women's groups or anything for much of the rule of Suharto. So, I mean, if, the, if, if there's the fo- a force that people fear emerging out of... Uh, uh, democratic elections in if islamism is that in in the middle east what is it in china that that people fear would would emerge some kind of populist nationalism what's what, when you hear people sort of raise that sujer argument you know for listeners who aren't familiar with it sujer is this hard to define term which means well, how do you define sort of, it for quality literally but but meaning your sort of edu- educational breeding upbringing quality yeah, yeah so breeding upbringing right um, I mean, people say you know the, the, the sujer of the chinese people is too low uh, i i've had uh, you know very intelligent friends of mine tell me frankly look if we had democratic elections in china uh, we would elect a Hitler and be at war with Japan next yeah. Tuesday. Yeah. You know, at, when I first heard this was back in, pre-1989, when I was at Peking University in 86, 87, 88, and you would, you know, democracy was was on everyone's lips. It was it was a topic of discussion. But when you talk to them, it was very clear they, were, they weren't really invested in the kind of democracy that we think of as the, you know, the, they weren't talking about the Lao Bai Xing. The intellectuals were actually as you say, sort of de- very deprecatory of the, of the common people. They would say to things like, you know, we're not ready for democracy. Just look at the look at these people pointing to some, you know, turnip seller there and saying, you can't give them the vote. What, what do they know? And even when, as it was leading up to that time, and, and you know, on, 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 Ju- on May 4th in Tiananmen Square, they had these signs of freedom, you know, uh, uh, science and democracy, you know, sure. echoing the 1919. 4th, year. Right. But this democracy they were talking about when you talked to them was really not this kind of democracy. What they wanted was this sort of meritocracy. They, they as intellectuals, wanted to be part like of the discussion. They wanted, they wanted to be in on, you know, they wanted to be at the table, uh, having a negotiating position at the table. They, this right. was not a democracy that they were thinking in terms of inviting everyone. It was, they wanted something to say. And, and even these, like this famous documentary, River Elegy, you know, I mean, it was supposed to be this plea for, a, a, you know, a, a radical political change in China. It's still was, fundamentally elitist. It was right? incredibly elitist. And even to this day, I think most of the discourse within China, not outside of China, but within China, tends to be, you know, uh, this sort of very elitist. Most, most intellectuals don't assume that, that China is even in the next few decades would be anywhere near close to a democracy. Right. I think people forget that even Wang Dan, you know, who is probably the, yeah. the last well-loved Tiananmen Square, leader, yeah, yeah. Tiananmen Square the, the one who, who outside of China is still a not, not a controversial figure who still has not disgraced himself in some no, way. No, he's still very active and still right. uh, writes. He, and, yeah. he affixed his signature to a, a petition uh, before, it was, I think it was in uh, February or March of 1989, Calling for the establishment of of Haidian District in Beijing as a special democratic zone, right? Because you know, of course, that's where all the eggheads. Why? Are. Because it was the <laughs> university center, right? Right. But you know, I mean, I think the thing <clears throat> is that this doesn't necessarily have to be seen as a completely anti-democratic tendency, because. I mean, there has to be. That's is why I'm so annoyed by the black and white. It's either de- full-on democracy, free press, or not. I mean, I think the with China, there has to be, if there's going to be any progress in the uh, bond between government and society, there has to be some progress on other participation of the citizens. And it doesn't have to be voting. 
But the ideologues, whether it's the, the, the defenders of the Chinese Communist Party or the you know, batshit crazy wingnuts in the United States, they, they, they see no possible gradual steps. They're no baby steps. And for me, the baby steps are what's important. So China doesn't have to be like Egypt or the Soviet Union. There are many other possible outcomes. Right. right. And you've also got a, a party that's, uh, you know, they use this term uh, performance legitimacy. Sure. I mean, that's one of the reasons that you don't fear that this kind of Arab Spring thing is going to happen in China. You remember when the Jasmine thing happened, all of us were talking about sort of taking the temperature of that time and saying, we just don't see it. I mean, there were all these uh, reporters there and, you know, waiting for something to happen. And most of us were thinking, they're, nobody's going right. to show up. Chinese don't have the, the stomach for this. They're not interested in revolt right now because they're doing pretty damn good. So, I mean, uh, this, this sort of thing means China is on a different path, you know, than these other countries. And also, I agree with, with Jeremy. We, people have got to separate democracy from other things like freedom of the press, economic rule of law, for, uh, right. rule of law and economic uh, freedom and things like that, which, which we've seen in all different countries can, can be separate and can move at different paces. Anthony, as jump advance. in here. Jump in here. We haven't heard from you for a while. <laughs> it just occurs to me, though, that, you know, um, there's been all this debate lately about Hong Kong getting the vote in 2017. Mm-hmm. And that is an example of, you know, a fairly clear... Uh, transition from suffrage from no suffrage to suffrage so um, that's a big transition and you know that's an example of where you could say uh, ready or not 20 20 or 17 2017 is coming right the period of tutelage ends in 2017 I mean a lot of people of course hold up the example of Taiwan as an example this is a, a a Chinese society which exercises I mean, it's especially last year's election, I think it, it was it, it went so beautifully. It was such a, a, a nice example that a lot of Chinese intellectuals here, uh, they reexamined this long-held notion that, that somehow uh, there's something in the Chinese uh, political culture itself that's intrinsic to it that makes mm. it hostile to democracy. And Eric's ex-Lee would say, yeah, and, they went, and it took him 50 years to get to this from a, a sort of Leninist police state rule. And whereas China has only gone, you know, whatever. And years. I mean, one does have to be aware that there are too many people in China. So, I mean, democracy, literally, you know, the rule of the people. I but mean, there are too many people. There are too many chefs. They can't cook together. That is true. I mean, the, the massive numbers do make a difference. That's true. They yeah. really do. You can't just say that that doesn't make a difference. It makes everything more complicated. Sure. Do you know that there are polls even I've, I've seen around where a, a, a significant number of Chinese people, I don't know how exactly informed they are, but actually will say that, that China is a democratic system. They, they believe it because you see elections are mentioned. You know, Clearly proving elections. that they are unqualified to vote. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps. But no, I mean, sorry, they, they do believe, they, there are, people do believe that because they see yeah. their village elections. They see people casting votes but at the party I mean, Congress. How is that survey question asked, David? That, that, that's a I know, I'm just pointing what, out. What did you get that on CCTV? I don't believe that <laughs> survey. I'm sorry. So, I mean, like, but, but, but at the bottom, the question is, so is everybody ready for democracy? Uh, have we uh, agreed that, that this is... David Brooks' argument then isn't completely specious, right? I mean, you can't – we're not ready to say, well, no, gosh, everybody is D- – David Brooks is suffering from cognitive dissonance because a country that went democratic, democ- demo- democratic. demographic demo- – <laughs> <laughs> went uh, is now dysfunctional, and he just doesn't know how to process. I mean, to me, that's it. I, I think we should forget about him. Yeah, I mean – I know he started the conversation, but – 
China right. and democracy and is what you're asking about, right? From Hugo Chavez, to, we've always had this argument about whether someone who's democratically elected is necessarily good or bad. Right. The, the I, I right has always been, you know, what he calls substance, what, whatever, over yeah, process. A certain right. German chancellor yeah, right. was elected. Uh, um, I, I think the main thing is that what we feel is that there's not a ground swell of populist yearning for democracy right now. There just isn't. When you talk to people, do you hear? Do you people? agree with that, Anthony? As a representative of the, you know, I mean, I'm talking Western about only media. in China, yeah. in China, not not out, not outside, but in yeah. China. No, no, I'm talking about. I'm asking Andy about inside yeah, China because you know, you are perceived true or not as well, a representative. I, I think the government is worried about that that groundswell. They say it doesn't exist, mm. and yet at the same time, they're very worried about things like that exploding in the streets. And I think also. Um, you know, safe the, than sorry. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the arguments to the contrary. The arguments to the contrary that, uh, you know, poor countries are not ready uh, keeps on being dismissed either by Chinese leaders like Wen Jiabao, who visited Africa a few years ago and said, look at all these countries that are so much poorer than, than uh, China uh, voting. Uh, and, you know, the, the almost the poorest country in, uh, in Southeast Asia, Myanmar. Uh, heading down that road as well. The facts as, as countries go democratic uh, discredit that argument. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I, I still don't think that, I, I certainly agree with that, and I think there's a, there's a general agreement. Like, as we said, even Wen Jiabao said, says that democracy is in China's future and we're working toward that. Uh, and, you know, they talked about this first stage of, like, inner-party democracy where they do these village elections and they try to... So, so it's not as if they're not aware of it or they're at least paying lip service to doing something about it. But the way I see it is the Chinese people, this, just, this is just my personal feeling from living here so long, is it doesn't come up in conversations. They're, they're angry about corruption. They're angry about accountability. And they, they want some, some kind of voice in policymaking, which sometimes translates into taking to the streets when they, when they try to open a toxic chemical plant. You know, and and in Wukan uprising and these sorts of things, but but never in this discussion do I hear common people saying, "Time know, for we, institutional change." Yeah, we, we want can. another party to vote for. Let's say, they, in fact, the party usually has very high uh, approval, approval ratings. ratings of, such as yeah, are. as Eric Sexley has been fond of pointing out in this uh, in his video, which I think we'll put on our on the to link to on the site, right? Yeah, uh, that's true. I mean, <laughs> most people sort of. I mean, they, they might. Uh, uh, fight uh, with bare hands uh, for their children's right to go to, or the savings fund to go to Harvard. Right. But uh, as far as their political rights, they won't lift a finger. I think that, I mean, whether you find that sad or not, that is the truth. Do, do, you, do you think there is something, I mean, this, this gets, now this gets into cultural relativism and into the David Brooks territory, sort of. But do, do you think there is something about uh, the Chinese sort of uh, default assumptions about what government can be and should be, that they're still thinking in terms of, of, of a either not necessarily a meritocracy, but a benevolent dictatorship. Sure, sure. I think I mean, that, there's, that, there's, that, there's that has the duty to you know, give us a, a higher standard of living until you fail in that, and then you lose the mandate of heaven, heaven and we overthrow you. There's I think it's a, it's a very, very old, very, very uh, difficult idea to dispense with all, altogether. I yeah. mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a deeply ingrained habit of mine. You know, the, the old mention dictum that those who labor with their heads right. ought 
you know, rightly rule over those. I, I disagree. I, I don't think any Chinese person is under the illusion that the, the, the leaders are benevolent. I think Chinese no, no, that's people... All, that's all that's being said. I, that's I, not what I'm saying at all. So, I expect quite the opposite. They, right, they, they, they gripe they, what, that they aren't. I mean, but but they don't have the this alternative of, of saying, why don't we go to the streets and demand... No, they don't. You know, because uh, the assumption is that life is jianghu, it's rivers and lakes. Yeah. Everything is hostile. So I look after me and my family yes. first. Yeah, that's right. the basic assumption. Yeah, right. So I think... Uh, David had it right when he was talking about how there is this expectation on the part of the, the modern equivalent of the old literati elite, this idea that they have a right to tacit, at least, access of channel, to channels of consultation, to, to sit at the table, mm-hmm. to be a part of, of, of the decision-making. But, you know, given, given the way China is right now, will somebody please explain to me how you would get to a, something like we would call a multi-party democracy with a vote I don't see an obvious path. No, there, there's right an easy now. glide path toward it right now. Right. Well, yeah, I mean that's, that's one, one of the issues. Stop locking up people who criticize you. I'm sorry. To me, that uh, that's if you don't stop doing that, you'll never even make the first baby step. Yeah. You have to allow people to let off steam without locking them up. If you don't do that, you have no hope. You're not even trying, and you'll never get anywhere until there's a revolution. Yeah, let me, that, let me for me that. that uh, it's, and bring this back to the Middle East a little bit, um, because I, I, this is, we have we have the opportunity to speak with Anthony here, and he's done quite a bit of reporting and traveling there. Uh, when when you talk to people in the Middle East and they they understand that you have spent an awful lot of time in China, what are the questions that you get? Uh, well, I don't usually talk to them about China's experience, but there's uh, you know there's clearly a sense of admiration at China's economic successes. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's a feeling that, uh, you know, in places I've been like Iraq, there's clearly a feeling that, uh, you know, a lot of Iraq's infrastructure was Chinese built to begin with. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were disadvantaged during the war. They couldn't get it, you know, China could not get its firms in edgewise against Halliburton and companies like that. <laughs> and the Iraqi, Iraqis feel they could have gotten a better deal from them. Uh, in Pakistan, while I've, where I've reported, uh, there's the so-called all-weather friendship uh, with India as the background there. Um, and, uh, you know, people see China as, as less tainted uh, as the U.S. Is, or, or EU by the former you, you, You're former talking involvement. about sort of those countries, relation, how China has treated those countries. But what about China's political model? Do you see, I mean, do, do, have you had any interaction with people in places like Pakistan where... Uh, do, does anyone speak admiringly of the Chinese political model, or is it simply just a function of uh, the, the infrastructure they're able to deliver, or, hey, you know, they're... they're seem to be doing pretty well over there across the Himalayas. Uh, well, you do often hear uh, things like, you know, they've got it right in that they've put stability first, and that's what's allowed uh-huh, them to uh-huh. do their economy. Is, that's what you mean by authoritarian envy, is it? Right. Are the countries I've, thinking, if only we had it like Beijing? Not long ago, I was on a, a plane back from Singapore um, and uh, with, with a, uh, an Egyptian gentleman who is a very, very high-level executive at a, a big multinational. Um, and we shared a, a car on the way back from the airport, and he uh, had quite a bit to say on this matter. I mean, he said that, that uh, he thinks Egypt, Egypt is going to be fucked for another you know, 10 years, uh, irrespective of what happens. He says that, that uh, there was just no sense of 
the actual cost of doing what it was that they were going to do by bringing Mubarak down. They, 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 there was this sort of short-sightedness about it where he says that Chinese have a very clear idea of the cost that, that, that society would have to bear in terms of, 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 of human lives, of misery. If there was a re- if there re- really rebellion. Were, yeah. And both the leaders and the ordinary people have that feeling. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So what what about this this notion of this performance? You know, you have, uh, you know, a, a country needs legitimacy in order to keep the you know the, the people in line or keep them supporting you so they don't revolt. And it seems like that that in democratic countries, especially I'm thinking of the United States, the legitimacy is the legitimacy is sort of in the system itself. That's right. There's a, there's an election, and then even if you in, in except in exceptional cases like the first George W. Bush election, which I think was not legitimate, but but basically if someone is elected, you may oppose him, but you still he has the legitimacy. Because they may of the have system. dreadfully low approval ratings. Yes. Through, through their entire administration, incredibly low, and people may even you know throw him out the next time. But they're legitimate. But they're legitimate. Whereas in a place like China, the legitimacy rests solely on how well you perform. Yeah, but how do you measure that? Well, I mean, you measure it by its GDP, for one thing, and by the, you know, raising 600 ex- million people out of poverty and all these things that, that we've, t- we've talked about. You know, th- as long as the people think, are optimistic, and think, you know, my life tomorrow will be better than it is today, then you've got legitimacy. And if they start but to I not did, feel that way, then you lose legitimacy. The trouble in China is that they haven't provided any other ways of, of, of you know, giving legitimacy. That's, right. that's, the, that's, that's my the point. Problem, right? They're stuck. They're trapped. They're it's trapped. like this trapped in transition. Trapped it's, in it's performance like, it's like if, they, if, if, if the economy starts to flop, fail, if uh, some you know, outrageous thing happens, like the Three Gorges Dam explodes because of an earthquake, and there's, you know, then there's beer. nobody else to blame. They start to lose the legitimacy. And you know, it's, it's Susan Shirk's book, China, a Fragile Superpower, right? China is afraid of its own people because their legitimacy, they've really got to perform to keep that legitimacy. Whereas you see the U.S. Uh, government right now, the Congress, these clowns are up there, pr- approval ratings in the 10 teens, and, oh, yeah, and they're yeah. not doing anything because they, their legitimacy is not threatened by how they actually perform in the economy. And it's, people, people point to this and say, you know, What's the val- what Even Chinese are t- talking about this. They look at the U.S. model and they're saying, what's the advantage of this two-party system? I just don't see it. They're not producing. They're starting to, f- to falter and where China's but still But again, this is why I get so mad because it's not just a two-party system. That's one big aspect of it. But it's a free media. It's a system yeah. of you know, allowing people right. to speak their mind. It's a system of even when you do lock up people like Bradley Manning, you can go in Washington, D.C. and stand in front of the White House and scream your head off about why that's not allowed. I'm, I'm you know, just having trouble envisioning, Jeremy. Voting. I'm, I'm having trouble envisioning, you know, how, how a single-party authoritarian state can exist with an open history. I mean, if you can point to me, you know, examples of, of such things in, in history. Of a transition from oh, no, a... Or, 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 right, or of a single-party state that's that's okay with seditious speech, okay with, with an open uh, opposition, with, a, 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 with dissenters who aren't, you know, constantly facing the, the, the truncheon. Yeah. Is there an example? Yeah, I'd probably stop me there. No, see, that's that's my problem you, with it. Is I, I, if, if if I were to, you know, exactly. This gets so Eric Exley is right, and and so is David Brooks. So, it's, no, so, I, it's well, the the, the, no. the thing of value that Eric Exley has done is is the same thing that D- David has done. Here. I mean, which is I think it's it's David Brooks or David Moser. David, David Moser here, uh, and that's just I think that it, it 
I'm, I, it's, it's, a, it's a good idea every once in a while to challenge this often unchallenged assumption of the inherent superiority of, of, of you know, uh, democratic capitalism. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's, it's nice to see that challenged once in a while. Yeah. Uh, Although Eric actually does it in an incredibly intellectually dishonest way. I, 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 w- I would tend to agree with yeah. you th- there. But, but I think this argument has gone on for a long time, and it's been pointed out so early. It's not about the system, capitalism or com- communism. It's about the policies. Doesn't Asia's, Asia's experience show that very clearly? Doesn't, or Latin America's for that matter, that, you know, countries that were authoritarian but, you know, had the right policies, like the four, four little tigers advanced. That's right. And when China had, you know, the authoritarian system but the wrong policies, it did not advance. Well, well it's the sort of uh, crisis of the, inle- of the intelligentsia after uh, the fall of communism and then after Tiananmen Square that everyone had the, the, the sort of default assumption that, that once uh, capitalism and free markets came in, that democracy f- would follow. I mean, that was the line. Right, that was the old That was the right, old the China, line. And, and then, but since then, that's been just uh, smashed. In, that the, in the late 80s before 89 happened, I mean, it, it seemed to be the case. <clears> I mean, you, you could point to case after case after case of sort of right. soft authoritarian regime, whether it was under Jiang Jingguo right. uh, or, um, or Li Guan Yu or whatever. Morphing into Morphing into, right, yeah, uh, something right. That, was, that was more, yeah. more recognizable. And, and think places like Singapore or, the, or now China just have destroyed that that illusion you can still have a you can use markets and you can create great prosperity and still be a totalitarian you know you can't but singapore <coughs> i mean you know don't tell jim mann or, or bill bishop this but i actually still believe that i i actually kind of do believe that after a certain level of of gdp per capita uh, with you know a certain level of, of, of expectations uh in in a larger true middle class Mm-hmm. That, that, that it, it sort of does follow naturally. So it can happen. So I, I kind of I'm well, well, given up. Right, well, right. your gradualist approach is, is very good. A lot, a lot of people make the case that say, look, uh, China with its economic uh, advancement has created in some areas a quasi, uh, you know, areas of free speech or at least increased free speech. Uh, economic freedoms have, have created, uh, you know, uh, by just slow, slow transition, gradualism has created more freedom in the lives of Chinese people that, that are, get very close to what we think of as this liberal democracy, the kind of freedoms we experience in the West. That's if you even ask Chinese people, they will say that, you know, if you look at their lives, they are in many, many ways much freer than they were 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and that's that. The, but the system is still a totalitarian one and there's still no vote. So. I don't know what to say to that either. I wouldn't call it totalitarian, but anyway. Uh, we need to wrap here and, and, and move on to recommendations here. Um, thanks for this kind of uh, – it's a strange session, but I think maybe one that listeners will find some I don't think we concluded in. anything here. No, no, which, <laughs> except, uh, and we didn't draw Anthony out enough, the person we really should have drawn yeah, out we really a lot more. Yeah. We just blabbered on. You can come back. Apologies. Come on next time. Not at all. <clears throat> anyway, um, why don't we, we make up for that and, and let Anthony start with recommendations for today. You got something you want to recommend to our listeners? Uh, well, one person who I've been reading a lot of and uh, am really impressed by uh, is a Shaman University <coughs> scholar named Fan Hongwei. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, a Shaman University has a very good Southeast Asia study center. And this guy has done uh, – re- he's recently come out with a book – uh, with uh, George Steinberg, who's sort of the dean of Myanmar studies, 
at George Washington University. Um, and what he did before that, I was really impressed, was, was, was one of the best studies of, uh, you know, the anti-Chinese riots in Burma in 1967. Hmm. He dissected those really very nicely. Um, and he's got a very independent position compared to some of the other uh, scholar official types on what's going on in, in uh, China-Myanmar relations, including, for example, the oil pipeline dispute. Uh, has Fan published in English? Uh, yes, look for his new book out <coughs> with, with George Steinberg. Okay. We will definitely put that on the list. Thanks, thanks very much. That sounds very interesting, and it was very apropos from uh, last week's show about uh, China-Myanmar relations. That's right. David, what do you have for us this week? Um, I want to recommend a book that sort of deals with roughly with some of the issues that we're talking about, but at a much lower, uh, in the sense of a much more reductionistic level. This is a book uh, called The Geography of Thought uh-huh. by, by Richard Nisbet. Yes, Univ- yes, yes. I've heard a lot U- about this. this University of Michigan uh, pr- uh, cross-cultural psychology e- expert, uh, psychologist. Um, You've heard about this. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Psychology of thought, yeah. Right. Oh, the geography of geography thought. Geography of right, thought. Right. So what this is is basically uh, uh, a compilation, a sort of survey of all the sorts of research that in cross-cultural psychology of Western and Far Eastern. This The book includes China, but also Korea and Japan, some, some data from Korea and Japan. It's, uh, it's cross-cultural psychology and cross-cultural linguistic studies that try to sort of uh, see if there's anything to uh, a sort of bottom-up approach, a kind of, kind of cognitive explanation for different kinds of, of proclivities, I should say, you know, for sort of behavior. This has to do with things like ideas about collectivism versus individualism, the, the usual cliches, you know, of family versus society and all these sorts of things, which we, you know, it's sort of like asking the question, is, is there any sort of uh, psych- psychological basis, uh, basis for, for this sort of Confucian mindset that people point to in Korea and everything? And it's quite interesting because... Well, give us th- one spoiler. Uh, well, I mean, for example, there are, there are some low-level, very low-level ch- uh, tests that show that, in fact, Chinese people are more sensitive to context in, in, in very many cases than Westerners are. That is, they will notice what's in the background, or they will notice how the background and foreground interact, whereas uh. Westerners will just pay attention to the foreground and never not, not even notice the background. And these are things where you can actually measure this by asking them questions and seeing what they noticed. That the same thing to do with, with, self, with, with a sense of identity, with how you describe yourself in terms of other people as opposed to... You know, and he, he traces it back to, the, to Greek thought versus you know, uh, the... the the Confucian and then the Chinese philosophers. So it's a very courageous and interesting book because it, it dares to get into the territory that some people would call stereotypes. But he, he tries to really use some uh, scientific and uh, psychological data to just make some stab at, at this, at this question of whether these societies are really different in terms of their psychology. Hand of God, that is going to be my next nonfiction read. Yeah, great. I've got something very simple. If you have been using Twitter for a long time, if you're kind of a dorky internet person, you can go into the settings on your Twitter account and you can download the entire archive of your tweets. 
And if, like me or you know, on my website Danway, you've been on Twitter since you know 2007, it's quite weird to read your <laughs> tweets from 2007. And I'd recommend you go and do that. I'd be embarrassed. Too. Yeah, I think I'd be ashamed. You will be embarrassed. Yes. <laughs> well, or so if you're yeah. anything like uh, I was embarrassed. Can we look Let's, at yours? Can no. We download yours. Twitter <laughs> makes it very difficult. I'll show to you see mine. Other people's old tweets. I'll actually. show you mine if you show me yours. <laughs> I, I, I'm not <laughs> sure about that actually. <laughs> His tweet's bigger. <laughs> My um, tweets are pretty pathetic. I've got, I've got an sense. unequivocal recommendation here for a, uh, a wonderful video. Uh, it's on YouTube and on Yoku. Um, it's called Beijing State of Mind, which is co- of course is, is a tribute, not a parody <coughs> really, but a, a tribute to the terrific Jay-Z song, New York <laughs> Empire State of Mind. Um, of course... Um, it's 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 really lavishly done. It was it was it was put together over the course of about fifteen months by a fellow by the name of Andrew Doherty who does the rapping, and by Mark Griffith who shot the thing, um, along with um, you know, doing the Alicia Keys vocal role, a woman named Princess Fortier. Uh, it's great. Uh, Andrew has very graciously offered to allow me to put the. Uh, the the song here at the end of the show, so uh, let's all give it a listen. But I encourage you to get on and and check out the video. It's great. It's all you know your your favorite places around Beijing, and it's it's just a lot of fun to watch, and it's it's really very well produced. I'm, my hat is off to these guys. Really terrific job, um, and it actually you know it's it's funny and everything, but it also gets you right there. <laughs> okay. Anyway, Anthony, thanks so much for coming and joining us. My pleasure. Okay, and David, as usual, good to see you, man. Thanks. Jeremy, uh, we'll see you next week, right? Yeah. Okay. Democracy, demos, they're all fucking crazy. Oh, we'll, we'll have something a little more coherent for you next week, I promise. It was worth a shot. I thought it was, a, it was an idea that we, we could try. Anyway, we'll see you next week. Take care and, and enjoy the song. Now I'm down in Gormau I started as a student But I run the show now I'm a nouveau expat Living in the CBD Riding on my damn pincher Everybody stare at me It ain't because I'm loud Why? Probably because I'm handsome Yeah, I'm the only pimp Wearing sea sucker pants And did my share of modeling Acting with the yo I'm dropping mad tracks I'll be hotter than J. Joe I'm cruising down the ho People driving slow Came a later traffic Or the awful driving so I Hop onto the subway The smell it ain't so lovely But it's just too quiet I don't mind getting cuddly I say what up to G-Town Who can find an in crowd But don't forget Jabba When he gon' change his hair Style. My boys be chillin' over there, drunk not high when I get the invite Then I know that I'm arriving in Beijing uh-huh. Uh-huh. Big jungle where dreams are made yeah. There's yeah. nothing you can do Yeah, you're in Beijing That's right, that's right Tai Chi will make you feel brand new The Gorwan shove more famous than the Gorwan K. Yeah, I watch your dragons. I'm forced at the ducks. Even though the halftime dancing show really sucks. But that ain't important. That ain't why I came here. I came for the history. Like the Tiananmen Square. Forbidden city. The Hutong's always gritty. Ten times hopping, dancing like P. Diddy. 
50 million people Half the dudes is naked Pulling up their shirts Cause the summers they can't take it Long finger nails Pinky on the right hand Cause the left will pinky you As well as your right one can Babies on the prowl Defecating on the pavement I just want a scowl Saying so why don't you save it But that's the way it is That's how we do it here If y'all don't like it You're welcome to steer clear uh. Amazing Come on A big jungle where dreams are made yes. There's nothing you can do Yeah, you're in Beijing You know what I'm talking about Yeah Tai Chi will make you feel brand new Sights will inspire you Let's hear it from Beijing Beijing, Beijing The migrants, they come here Kids, they are shunned here Can't get a hookah, so out of pocket healthcare, no fear. They leave their kids for the year. Grandparents take care, no one sheds a tear. Gao Kao was sober, the pressure done abated. So off to the university to get educated. But he becomes jaded after he's graduated. Cause he can't find a job, it's well compensated. So he hop on way more, he served Kaisin wrong. Then he gets on by due to download my song. Head to Don Don, who put up, forget your problems. A plate of hot chows on the corner, my side. When we come here with dreams and reality hits us Bundy, Whitey, Lao White Drifters But we love the energy, that's why the city's great So we all work late to protect the A